Greetings, and welcome to Momentum HSS, a podcast where we explore the diverse present, and especially the trends and coming futures of the humanities and social sciences writ large. I am your host, Darby Orcutt. I'm a librarian, teaching faculty, and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As someone who trains, supervises, and teaches current and future librarians, as well as collaborates deeply with humanists, social scientists, and those who support them, I see constant needs for listening, learning, and connecting. My guests on this podcast are an absolutely amazing array, including associational leaders, funders, scholars with deep background in the themes we'll be discussing, and also individuals at different career levels, from student to full professor, as is my guest for this episode. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you, and as you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter, at Darby underscore librarian, or more privately via email at dcorcut at ncsu.edu. Above all, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. Dr. E. Patrick Johnson is Dean of the School of Communication at Annenberg University at Northwestern University. A scholar artist, he performs nationally and internationally and has published widely in the areas of race, gender, sexuality, and performance. Johnson is a prolific performer and scholar, an inspiring teacher whose research and artistry has greatly impacted African-American studies, performance studies, and gender and sexuality studies. He is the author, editor, or co-editor of several award-winning books, including his most recent two, Black, Queer, Southern Women, and Oral History, and Honeypot, Black Southern Women Who Love Women. Welcome, E. Patrick. I wonder if you could please share just a little bit about yourself and your academic career. Um, so I have had a really interesting path uh, in my career trajectory. Um, I started out thinking I was going to be an actor, so I when I started undergrad, I majored in drama, and because the theater department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill uh, had a repertory company attached to it, Playmakers, undergraduates didn't get uh, the same kind of opportunities to perform uh, as the graduate students. And so I stumbled across uh, the Department of Speech Communication, which had this thing called Oral Interpretation of Literature. Uh, now it's performance studies. And uh, I switched my major and really became enamored with performance as an approach to not just literary study, but cultural phenomenon. And in particular, I was interested in oral history and ethnographic research and uh, became really fascinated with how people tell their stories and what having the platform to tell one story means. And that really shaped my scholarly interest moving forward. Um, so I ended up 
writing a dissertation about my grandmother and her oral history as a domestic worker. She was a living domestic worker for 18 years. And so my dissertation was about her. Um, I also was interested in the stories of uh, disenfranchised communities, particularly LGBTQ folk. And so my first published essay was called Snap Culture, A Different Kind of Reading, which was all about how Black LGBTQ folks use the nonverbal snap. I don't know if you remember the uh, men on film from In Living Color. Uh, yes. that, there, was, there was that skit. It was sort of based on you know, the snap. But anyway, my, my first article was about that. So that, that sort of shaped my career. And of course, I've also continued to perform uh, as well. Yeah, one of the foundations of your scholarship has always been that all people have stories and that all those stories are important. In this conversation, I really want you to feel free to tell your own stories. And perhaps the stories you don't tell so often because they may seem too mundane to you. Faculty are used to talking about their research process, for example, in very methodological terms. Um, but I want this conversation to, to be from a very human perspective about what goes into your work, uh, not just as an intellectual product, but your work as a job? Oh, um, well, <laughs> it's interesting because I always think of, well, I was going to say I always think of my my work as also my form of play, but that's not always the case. Um, but I've, I've been fortunate to have landed at an institution where creative scholarship counts as scholarship. And that was not the case in my first job. My first job was at Amherst College in an English department. I was teaching African-American literature, but I was teaching it from the perspective of performance. And it wasn't uh, a good fit uh, for me or for them. In that job, it really felt like work because I was having to, I was doing, you know, the, the kind of pedagogy that I wanted to do and also performing and, and writing in the, the way I wanted to write. At the same time, having to teach my colleagues how to value my, my research and how to value it and evaluate, <laughs> evaluate it, which is, you know, that's a precarious position to be in. And so um, fortunately, I was able to find a place like Northwestern where coincidentally, all of my mentors had graduated from the, I graduated from the department that I ended up um, getting hired in and then becoming uh the chair of, and now I'm the dean of the entire school. I'm just six days into the position. <laughs> so it's been quite a, a, a winding road uh, getting to where I am. But it wasn't until I landed at Northwestern that I found a happy marriage between the kind of research that I wanted to do, the kind of pedagogy I wanted to do, and also the 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 kind of service that I 
was interested in. And that has always been about engaging in service on campus that would bring people together around ideas uh, so that we weren't working in silos, uh, work that helped to diversify the faculty uh, and the student body. And when I am able to do that, the, the, the notion of work for me is not just a kind of obligatory thing, but it's, it's, it's something that I enjoy and feel like it's combined with my intellectual priorities, if that makes sense. But I know that that's, that's something that particularly faculty of color, queer faculty struggle with because there's so many pools on our time because usually we are the only or we're one of few. And so we, the expectations for us are, are different than white, straight colleagues. Because, uh, you know, if you are a faculty of color, you're having to um, be mentors to other students of colors. And oftentimes that uh, labor is uncompensated and pulls you away from your uh, research and your artistry. And then when it comes time to be evaluated, you're not evaluated on that kind of labor. Uh, they just want to know what have you published? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a, a kind of double-edged sword. But when everything is, is working in tandem uh, with each other, it, it, it doesn't feel as onerous. And when you are being uh, compensated or, or that extra labor is being evaluated as integral as opposed to additive, it makes a, a big difference. But that's something that I've had to, to navigate in my career, more so at Amherst College, though, than at Northwestern. That is certainly um, an interesting challenge uh, in your career is obviously not only having to deal with this sort of extra workload as a as a creative scholar, but also this extra workload as a as a scholar of color and so on and so forth. And thinking about you, you've talked about this a little bit in terms of like the, the tenure and promotion process, especially and and workload. What are the sorts of things that you know apart from that tenure and promotion process? librarians or others who work to support scholars could understand about those identities as, as working in a creative field, as being a person of color? What would you want them to understand that they could do to support scholars like yourself? Well, one is to sort of acknowledge the different scales of labor that people who uh, embody marginalized identities are expected to perform. and. In many institutions, that is not the case. I'll give some some examples. At Northwestern, when I arrived, I was the first person of color uh, to be hired in a tenure track position in my department. This was in 2000. I was not only the first person of color, but also the first African American. So one of the things that automatically happens is that all of the black students gravitate toward you because they uh, think, 
oh my God, we finally have a black faculty member who, someone who looks like us, someone who understands our experience and so on and so forth. My hire though was not about necessarily uh, becoming a mentor to the black students. It was about you know, producing scholarly work, doing excellent teaching and with service, you know, being important, but not as important as those other two. And this happens over and over again to women, to LGBTQ folk, to people of color. And when, when the institution doesn't, A, acknowledge that that, that extra burden uh, coming your way, particularly if you're a junior person, doesn't compensate for that. And compensation doesn't necessarily have to come in the form of money. But right. if you know they know that you're going to be mentoring an inordinate amount of students of color, then you can get a course release or um, they'll take that into consideration when they're evaluating the number of of uh, articles that you have. So that's the, that's the first thing, acknowledging that when you have a person who's from an underrepresented uh, minority group, that they automatically are going to be saddled with a different labor structure. The other thing is checking in with people to ask them what they need, as opposed to assuming what they might need. Some people get these positions and they're just sort of left to their own devices. And again, if you are a junior person in that circumstance, you don't always feel comfortable asking. You don't even know to ask for certain things. So you can't even advocate for yourself. Checking in with people to make sure that they have all of the necessary tools that they need to succeed. That's the biggest problem is, you know, once you diversify your faculty and whatever diversity means for you. It's creating an environment so that that diversity is not window dressing, that it is a cultural shift in uh, how one does business. And uh, that means creating an environment that's conducive to those people flourishing. Because what often happens, you're you get hired, you're the first, you're the only, you're taking on all of these responsibilities because you are the first and the only, and then you don't have anyone supporting you. And so you're, you're basically set up to fail. The other thing is uh, assigning a mentor for uh, this person or these persons when they come into a program, I think is really important. So again, they have someone who who feels like they, they have an advocate and they have support. But again, these are these are structural changes that I think institutions should implement. Uh, it shouldn't be a kind of haphazard strategy for making a, a more diverse and inclusive culture. What were the most important supports for you or who were they? That question varies depending on what point in my life. When I was a graduate student, it definitely was other graduate students. When I was at Louisiana State University, there were three African-American graduate students uh, in my cohort. And we were the first three 
in a decade. And so, uh, and there were no African-American faculty at all, none uh, in our department. And in fact, there were no uh, faculty of color in the department. So you can imagine that was pretty isolating. And Southern University in the Deep South, where there was rooms on campus called the Plantation Room, and that was the uh, most desired place to eat because they had the best food on campus. But imagine you having to, you know, have lunch at the Plantation Room. So the environment was not... Uh, a happy one. You know, the, the name of the student newspaper was the Daily Reveille, which was uh, based on, you know, the rebel flag. Mm. There, there was, the, the culture was really, really intense. And I arrived at LSU when David Duke was running for the governor mm. <laughs> of Louisiana. So I depended a lot on my fellow graduate students, and I ended up founding the Black Graduate and Professional Student Association at LSU, which still exists today as a way to support Black graduate students because we couldn't find that support in our faculty because we had no Black faculty, and at least in the Department of Speech Communication and very few across campus. And so uh, the Black graduate students came together and we were the support for one another I still had some mentoring that I was receiving from people like uh, Dee Sayini Madison, who was my MA thesis advisor at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, from Trudy Harris, who was in the English department at UNC Chapel Hill, and to an extent, Marco Crawford, who ran the Black Cultural Center at UNC Chapel Hill. But in my PhD program, I didn't have any faculty mentoring. When I got to Amherst College, um, I had a couple of senior colleagues who were sympathetic and, you know, who had sort of paved the way for someone like me to be there. But that was a really, really difficult time for me at Amherst. So in, in some ways, I thought leaving LSU moving to the Northeast to a small liberal arts college that was very wealthy and allegedly progressive, um, that that would be a great experience for me. It was not. Um, I love the students there, but the, the elitism, which was not disconnected from the white supremacy there, was in some ways more insidious than the sort of outright uh, racism I experienced um, at LSU and in Baton Rouge, uh, because at Amherst it was under the veil of or under the guise of standards, and so I was the only faculty member who had been educated at public schools. I was also an enigma too because I didn't have a degree in English; it was in studies and that was just sort of seen as this exotic thing. And so my colleagues were not enamored with uh, what I had to offer. Um, but again, I did have some mentors there. There was a, a dean uh, of students uh, who was also a storyteller uh, who sort of made herself my godmother as well. And her name 
was Ona Wumi Jean Moss, and she's still a very important part of my life today. You know, she's 82 years old and still storytelling and uh, still serving as a, a mentor and guide to me. But one of the first things she said to me when I arrived at Amherst was, first they seduce you, then they feed you, then they eat you. <laughs> and that became a sort of guiding metaphor for me at Amherst. At Northwestern, again, it was uh, a game changer because I had, even though I was the first African-American uh, in my, hired in my department, I had a lot of mentors, particularly Dwight Conkergood, who's now deceased, but was an amazing uh, mentor to me, even as a, a white male. His politics and his practice were more than progressive. They were revolutionary. And he provided so much guidance and, and support for me and made my time in the department just uh, a, a different kind of experience. I was also still being mentored um, by Suyini Madison from afar, but she, you know, had graduated from uh, Northwestern and Dwight Congregate had also been her dissertation advisor. And so I had a number of uh, people who I looked to for uh, mentorship. And um, then based on the wonderful a mentoring that I had received, I made sure that I mentored faculty coming after me. And I also made it my priority to transform my department so that I was not the only person of color. And so now, today, the Department of Performance Studies is majority faculty of color. Mm. Um, I hired four faculty of color when I was chair, including Soyini Madison. <laughs> so I sort of return the favor by uh, bringing her back uh, to Northwestern. And she just retired last year. So my goal is always to, to pay it forward. And uh, I was able to leverage my position as chair to prioritize diversifying the faculty, and it's paid off. You said that um, there were different people and different things at, at different times. And I think that that's something significant that I think a lot of times people outside of academia or even folks who who uh, work in academia and in these supporting roles think of university professor as a singular job. You're a PhD student, you get a degree, you become a professor, and, and there you are. But there are these rhythms and stages for tenure-track faculty like yourself, the progression from assistant to associate to full professor where you are now. What, what different pressures or goals or needs have, have you experienced, say, as a full, full professor from earlier stages in your career? Um, well, you know, it's interesting that you're right. There are different push-pull factors depending on what stage you're at. And it, I also will say it also depends on what kind of institution you're at as well, because the pressures at a research one institution are not the same as uh, those at a liberal arts college or a teaching focused institution or a community college. 
But at a research one institution as an assistant professor, the pressure is always going to be publishing. And most often that means publishing a book. And that is a huge undertaking. Uh, it's not the same as a dissertation. Uh, people mistakenly think that, you know, oh, I'll just change, you know, shift my dissertation, transform my dissertation to a book. Uh, it's not that simple. Most publishers will tell you that they want 70 to 80% of the dissertation gone <laughs> from the book mm -hmm. uh, because the, the dissertation audience is your committee. The book audience is the field. And that's a different process and a different kind of requirement. The hurdle for associate professors, I think, is not getting stuck as an associate professor because <laughs> that tends to be what happens to a lot of people, you work, you know, tirelessly to get published and get your book done, your articles done and work on your teaching. And then you get tenure. And then like, now what? Because that's also when a lot of service starts coming your way that ramps up, which keeps you oftentimes from uh, launching the next project. And so finding the balance between the service overload and the research is one I think that associate professors have a hard time navigating. So, you know, some people get stuck at the associate level. They're, you know, associate professors for the rest of their careers. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Northwestern has been paying attention to in the last couple of years is mentoring the, the whole, what they call the whole scholar, which means focusing on academics from their first year through emeritus status, such that there's systems in place that speak to the different kinds of scholars and teachers you're going to be across your career, whether that's being a first year student or after you've retired. I think that's really important because there's a lot of programs focused on junior faculty, but very few focused on tenured faculty in terms of helping them manage their careers. And so associate professor is also a, a crucial time in one's career that you can easily get stuck. Being a full professor, you don't necessarily get to sit on your laurels, but you get to be more selective about the kinds of things you want to do. For me, it has freed me to open or to be more experimental in my research. One might think that that's odd given that, that I'm a performer, but in terms of me be, being able to transform my artistic work in a scholarly way in terms of getting it published is one of the things that I really focused on uh, as a full professor. So uh, one example of that is engaging in multimodal forms of scholarship. So my last book was published by Duke University Press, but it's creative nonfiction. That's not something that I probably could have done as an assistant professor, but as a full professor, I'm freer to experiment and play uh, a bit more because I've sort of earned it uh, through doing the traditional scholarship 
and you know, sort of made a name for myself in a way that I could not have necessarily done as an assistant professor. The other thing that comes along with being a full professor is you're asked to do more substantive administrative things. Uh, and in many universities, you can only be a department chair if you reach the status of full professor. You also you know, get asked to be on university committees that carry a lot of weight. You're also asked to do service for the field in really important ways. Uh, for example, um, many institutions have program reviews, and I've been asked several times to be an external reviewer for a department uh, at another institution, for instance. So you you get to, or I, not you get to, you get asked to do these service, um, do a different kind of service that is sort of most of the time outward facing at other institutions, but even within your own institution, you get asked to do things that uh, are really substantive uh, in terms of the way things work. Yeah, and this is just unique to to me, probably, but I've talked to other colleagues. I have become more selective about the graduate student advising I do. I've I've advised close to 25 PhD students over the course of the time I've been here at Northwestern. And now I'm slowing down a bit, (laughs) you know, not taking on, especially now that I'm a a dean, I'm not taking on any advisees because I just can't, uh, I don't have the bandwidth to, to do that. Some of my colleagues who are full professors continue to take on lots of graduate students, but many of them start pulling back uh, from advising so many because it, it, you know, it's a lot of work. Well, I know you're only six days into the, the deanship. <laughs> uh, it is a wonderful opportunity now and an obligation that you have to really steer what in your school is a, a very diverse set of departments uh, from humanities and arts to social sciences and even neuroscience, communication disorders. When you start thinking about that, how do you envision the, the future of these fields holistically? Where higher ed is going and, and, and what you need to, to help these folks uh, be prepared for? Well, you know, our school of communication is, as you suggested, quite unique in that it has a full range of communication arts and science fields from people who are studying actor training, documentary film, cochlear implants, swallowing, computer algorithms, you know, theater history. I mean, it's, it's quite breathtaking, the, the, the range of things that, that our school does. But the thing that runs through all of those disciplines is human communication. And in this particular moment, and like right now, even the way that we are communicating with each other in this interview is, has, has transformed the way we do scholarship, the way we teach, the, the way we do research. And every department in my school has a role to play in studying that phenomenon, in creating new forms of communication, and in training students uh, not only how to analyze 
all these different phenomena, but also how to be operators of these new communication forms. So the challenge for us is keeping up with how quickly communication is changing. Ten years ago, we never would have thought about Zoom <laughs> or, or, you know, these the, the forms that now we take for granted, particularly now that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And so what what does it mean to to be teaching vis-a-vis a virtual platform? What are the implications on how we learn? What are the implications on our language, the language that we use? What are the implications on how we perform? And like on our stages, in front of screens, what are the the sort of physiological impact on on the way we listen? You know, which is what our communication science and disorder faculty um, study. You know, how we listen, how we hear, how we swallow, and how that impacts speech. What is the impact on human computer interaction, artificial intelligence? All of these things are intertwined. And I think the challenge for me as Dean is making sure that we're not in silos as we study and learn about these new forms, but that we collaborate, that we collaborate across uh, the disciplines within the school such that someone who studies hearing in communication sciences and disorders is talking to our sound studies faculty in radio, television, film, who's talking to our musical theater people in the theater department, who's talking to our ethnomusicologists in performance studies. Because all of them have something to say about sound and hearing, but from vastly different perspectives. But imagine what could happen if you get them all in a room together talking about their ideas and the kind of knowledge that they could create in that collaborative space. So that's one of the things that I'm going to be working on is finding spaces of collaboration across these communication arts and science disciplines, because I think that transforming the notion of the lab, like not letting the hard sciences control uh, the lab as a metaphor uh, or even a, a space, but sort of laboratory learning, which is ultimately collaborative learning, using that uh, as a metaphor for how we move forward within the field of communication is really important to me and specifically at my school. What fears or what issues uh, do you think might start keeping you up at night? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm worried about the state of the world. I mean, it's not like I haven't been all along, but right now it feels as if there's there's a reckoning from Mother Nature and the earth and how we have uh, continuously abused her. And so we're dealing with a global pandemic. We're dealing with another reckoning around anti-Black racism and white supremacy. 
that's been ongoing, but it it feels different now. The economic disparities that this pandemic has laid bare, particularly uh, amongst our students, some of whom don't have the resources at their homes in terms of broadband cable or the luxury of having their own space to attend a Zoom class or who don't even have a computer at home or or laptop or phone. So those are the things that continue to worry about and that concern me. And I'm just one person. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not naive to think that I, you know, have the, all the solutions. But what I do know is that I have the will and I have the determination to do my part. And I also know that at being at a place like Northwestern, which is a wealthy private institution, then I have an obligation to leverage uh, those resources in a way that is going to lift those folks who are in need up uh, in any way that I can. So when I first accepted this job and the announcement went out, which was six weeks ago, which seems a lifetime ago now, um, I spent a lot of sleepless nights because I was thinking, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> now, six days into having the job, I'm sleeping okay at night because I've sort of gotten into a rhythm. You know, I finally realized I'm not going to be able to address everything immediately. It's it's a slow burn. It's a simmer as opposed to a, a boil. And so once I, I took that pressure off myself, I could then sort of recalibrate and say, okay, what can I address today <laughs> in this moment right. as opposed to focusing on the, you know, all of the, the, the plethora of pressures that come with a job like this. So I'm sleeping now, but I wasn't before. <laughs> well, what if you had that proverbial magic wand and maybe one that didn't work on the entire world, but at least that would work within the space of humanities, arts, or academic institutions? What's the one change you'd make? Well, you know, what's been interesting to me is, and I've sort of seen this in the last decade, is the focus on STEM. STEM, 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 STEM. And what that has meant is a, is a um, redirection of resources to STEM. Um, and I am absolutely a proponent of the STEM fields. However, I also know that without the humanities and social sciences, STEM people couldn't do their work. I think people forget that it's in the humanities fields that people learn to read and write to be critical thinkers, to be imaginative. And so if I could wave my magic wand, I would direct more resources to the humanities and social sciences because we're cheap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I think about what it costs to set up a, a chemist at Northwestern, which is in the millions of dollars, one one microscope can cost $2 million. Can you imagine 
what you could do with $2 million in the humanities, in the arts. You could, you know, fund things for a decade with $2 million. <laughs> so it would be trying to, instead of taking away money from the humanities and the social sciences to uh, prioritize them more, not to, not over STEM, but equal to, because one of the things that I've also seen happening over the years is that young people who want to go to college and study theater, performance, film, anthropology, so on and so forth, their parents are dissuading them because, quote, what are you going to do with that? Um, and so they end up majoring in econ. Uh, they end up majoring in chemistry, biology. Uh, and that's fine uh, if that's true, their passion. But I hate to see uh, young people who are steered toward a field that doesn't bring them joy and that they're not passionate about. So one of the things that has happened is, you know, we get a lot of theater and engineering majors, theater and econ, <laughs> film and you know, physics. We get a lot of double majoring because the the art part is the thing that they really want to do, but to satisfy the parent, <laughs> they're majoring in a STEM field. Well, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. Very, very much enjoyed it. Really appreciate all that you, you brought out here. Absolutely. Is there, is there anything else that you feel you'd like to add at this point? I'll just say that I, if for anyone who's going to be listening to this conversation, is whatever pressures you're feeling right now, know that you have community. Uh, I think it's so important to remember that you're not alone. It's the thing that has sustained me in the academy over the years is knowing that I wasn't alone. Even when I felt alone, I had to realize that I actually was in community. And when I didn't feel like I was in community, I created community. And that is the thing that has sustained me over the years. So that's the one thing I would add. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum. Momentum.